Hi, this is Jordan from the Orwell Foundation, the charity which runs the Orwell Youth Prize. The Orwell Youth Prize is an annual programme for students aged 12 to 18 and culminates in a writing prize. The prize and programmes around it introduce young people to the power of political language and provoke them to think critically about the world around them. We've teamed up with Compass to produce a new podcast series where all Youth Prize winners and runners-up discuss the themes emerging from their writing with leading politicians, activists, journalists and thinkers right here on the It's Bloody Complicated feed. From social housing to the power of dystopian fiction, subscribe to It's Bloody Complicated now to hear these urgent new political voices in conversation with the likes of John Harris, Dawn Butler and more. If you would like more information about the Orwell Youth Prize, visit our website at orwellfoundation.com. Welcome to It's Bloody Complicated, the Compass podcast. I'm Neil Lawson, your host and director of Compass. These are unprecedented times and we need to rise to the new and enormous challenges we now face. Over the next few weeks, we'll be speaking with writers, thinkers, politicians, journalists and public service workers about how we come out of this mess in much better shape than we went in, a good society after COVID-19. These conversations have live access for Compass members who can put their own questions directly to our guests. If you'd like to participate in the live call and help support all of our work, go to compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast to join Compass today. Otherwise, sit back, relax and enjoy this week's podcast. This week on the Compass podcast, we're delighted to be hosting the launch of a fabulous new book, Tomorrow's Communities, Lessons for Community-Based Transformation in the Age of Global Crises. It's now out, being published by Policy Press, and you'll want to buy it after hearing our three guests. It's a book that's very close to the heart and thinking of Compass. It's so close that I co-authored a chapter in the book with Colin Miller. If Colin's on the call, he'll be laughing because Colin wrote most of the chapter with uh, all of his brilliance, and I'm very grateful for Colin for his help with that. And joining us to discuss the book are its editor, Henry Tam, and two of the key contributors, Marjorie Mayo and Diane Warburton. Henry is a political writer whose books include Time to Save Democracy and more recently, Whose Government Is It? Henry was the head of civil renewal under the last Labour government, and let's hope it's not the last Labour government. I always (laughs) make that joke. Marjorie is Professor of Community Development at Goldsmiths, University of London. Her recent publications include Community-Based Learning and Social Movements and Changing Communities, Stories of Migration, Displacement and Solidarities. And last but not least, we've got Diane, who is a founding trustee of the brilliant democracy organisation Involve. Her published works include Community and Sustainable Development and From Here to Sustainability. Welcome all three of you. Thank you for helping make this terrific book happen and for being with us tonight. So over to you, first of all, Henry, because the book presumably was your idea. Tell us, you know, if you can, the elevator pitch for the book, what it covers, why you wanted to produce it and what impact you hope it's going to have. Okay, thanks, Neil. Um, The idea of the book really is prompted by a lot of people, commentators, politicians, always talk about you know, communities have to become more resilient. They have to become stronger. They have to tackle all these problems, which now with global crises are cropping up regularly. 
Um, and then there's an expectation that uh, somehow communities would then just become these different entities to deal with all these different challenges. But while it's true that communities have a lot of potential to do a lot more, as people point out, that uh, people are always ready to help out their neighbors, to do more as volunteers and so on. What is it that actually communities can, can do more and what can realistically be expected of them? Now, on the one hand, there's a lot of rhetoric about what communities can do. People talk about, oh, look, look at all these people ready to, to help um, with, with food banks and so on. But, but is the underlying agenda just leaving it to communities to, to sort out their own problems? Or is there a, a deeper um, approach to helping communities? Now, the reality is beyond the rhetoric, there are lots and lots of examples and initiatives over decades of how public sector organizations and community groups, volunteers, public officials been working together using spe specific techniques which have led to immense results which have helped communities better employment, better health, safer, safer communities and so on. And these examples are all around, not, not just the UK, but around the world. And the, the, the interest for me is that if we can capture these examples, look at the evidence and showcase them in, in one collection to say, look, there are all these different ways of actually helping working with communities genuinely to improve their quality of life, then substantial improvements can be made. Forget about the rhetoric, forget about just, oh, make communities better somehow, you know, by, 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 by magic wand, but actually using different techniques for different circumstances, then we actually we can achieve a lot more. And that's why I went to um, a, a whole range of experts. You, you mentioned yourself and, and Colin, um, Colin Miller, uh, and, and, and of course, Diane Marge, and, and many others who have been at the forefront of studying, examining, and driving these changes, uh, along with activists in communities to, to make things happen, and actually produce this book full of in, in instructive lessons to learn from. So we'll, we'll come over to Marjorie and Diane in a minute with uh, the, their chapters. But Henry, are there particular examples you'd kind of give to us to highlight where communities can be empowered, empower themselves and make big change happen? Yeah, it, I mean, but there's, there's so many. I'll just pick a few in, 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 in the brief um, time, time we have. I mean, community economic development, for example, we, 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 we've talked about how everyone's saying that well, let's transfer assets to, to communities. Don't just give them short term grants, which, you know, within a year or two years, they're busy looking for another the grant. They can never really sustain it, but actually give them meaningful assets, land, property that they can then use as a basis to generate their own income to help the communities, provide them with facilities locally. But, but that's not the end of the story. You have to do it in a way which really helps communities, not simply um, give them short term assets, which then one particular group can then sell off for their own private Again, you have to put in asset locks, which means you have to have the proper legal framework. You have to have the proper financial arrangements to sustain it. So, so there's one whole approach. And, in, and, and also, although people talk about asset transfers a lot, a government can actually do a lot in, in this area. Between The difference between simply giving assets to the private sector, not just moving out, you know, simply moving out of the public sector, but giving it to the private sector, or actually helping to give it into the community sector with proper community framework. That's just one area. Um, another area is, is platform technology, um, whereby local community groups can actually join forces instead of relying on these exploitative um, platform technology, which actually pay people a pittance, then take nearly all the profit for themselves. Actually, people in communities using cooperative worker um, technology can form their own platform and actually retain most of their income for themselves and for the local community. 
So before we, we move on, just a, two more quick questions for me, Henry. Firstly, why is this different from the, you know, Cameron's notion of, of, of the big society? And we may get into later where the Tories are going maybe in the future. But is, is it different? And I get, well, I'll roll my questions into one. Is it different in the sense that I'm never very comfortable? I like, you know, it's good that people might be resilient. But I want them to be, you know, transformative and their politics to be transformative. You know, so is this different from the big society? And is it building the basis for a transformative politics, not just a resilient hunkering down and weathering the neoliberal storms? Well, is transformative, particularly progressively transformative, because it is about a partnership for a more inclusive and effective society. And, and I think that's the key. It's not about the kind of big society rhetoric, which is simply about we would just sprinkle a few grants here and there for groups out there, and they can do a few things in the short term, and we would say that something has been done. It is about what is it, what is the kind of improvement and change that we really want. And, and that's why I think the, the, the key word is partnership. Uh, the framework has to be set. I mean, there have been examples where some local authorities have given grants under this kind of a big, big society rhetoric to some community groups which are so exclusionary that they refuse to then spend any money on projects which involve um, ethnic minority uh, in, in interests. And then local authority says, well, there's nothing we, we can do. We just want to give it to, to the community to do as they wish. But that, that's not the kind of tra transformation we want. So, so the partnership must be defined by a joint shared interest in how do you actually make society more inclusive, more genuinely committed to mutual support. And on that basis, on that framework, do you develop the kind of, yes, we give you, we support you with assets, we support you with information, skills development, long-term support, so that you can use that to develop um, initiatives and activities in your local community for the betterment of everyone and not just for some exclusionary interests. Fantastic. Thanks, Henry. And thanks for editing the book and all the work that went into it and corralling us all. Um, one of the people that you corralled into this was Marjorie. And your chapter is on the importance of community-based learning. Um, do you want to just talk us through what the kind of highlights of, of your chapter are, Marjorie? Yeah, thanks very much, Neil. And many thanks again to Henry and all the colleagues, including Dan, who, who contributed to the book. Yeah, my chapter argues for the importance of community-based learning, whether it's communities in geographical areas, communities of identities of social movements. I think that's always been important as a driver for social change, right through from the Chartists and the 19th century and the idea of we need really useful knowledge in order to change the world for the better. I think it's more important now actually than ever before. I think it's not just that we've been surrounded by claims about fake news and, um, questions about what, what we can believe at all, kind of culture wars actually being waged at the moment. We need to be able to respond to those. I think it's made more extreme by social media. Um, so we can live in bubbles that spread, whether it's progressive views or worse, if it's anti-vaxxer or anti-climate you know, change deniers and so on. So we do actually need this more than ever. And I think what we need is what Bernard Crick, who was one of the thinkers behind one of the programs that uh, Henry was so successfully managing, is we need political literacy. And I think I'll just say a word, the chapter does say what we, what we actually mean by that. Um, we're talking about popular education here. We're talking about 
it's not just knowledge and skills. Of course, you need knowledge and skills. You need to understand the structures and you need to have the skills and the confidence to be able to engage with them. But you also need critical thinking. What one woman said to me when she was talking about regeneration programmers, we learned to smell a rat. And that just seemed to kind of summarize it. You need to be able to work out what's going on, unpack it, and then think through what your strategies are. I think um, I refer to Paolo Freire. Everybody refers to Paolo Freire, and some people misinterpret him, but never mind. The idea is it's got to start from what communities are interested in. It, it's no good just going and telling them about how you're going to run regeneration or whatever. You've got to start with their interests and then help them to work through how they can understand it better and how they can develop strategies for change, which is democratic and inclusive. So that's the case. The rest of the chapter gives some examples, quite a wide range. I just mentioned there's pro British programmes that Henry very successfully um, was involved in organising from his uh, professional position in government. And they were very much partnerships. And I think that's really important. It wasn't government telling people what they needed. It was working with communities, with anchor organisations, with colleges and, and, and trainers to provide it. It gives some international examples. I've been to the States recently and seen amazing work that was being done through libraries, which are places where people gather, and Colombia, both urban and rural Colombia, where there were, again, amazing examples of community initiatives based in local communities for learning. Um, and it refers to some very current initiatives like um, moves to get to kick um, racism out of football um, and to engage with people around their passion for football to challenge racism and inclusion, exclusion. The final example is mutual aid. I just think I've learned so much from mutual aid. I thought I knew my neighborhood. I had no idea quite how much poverty and food poverty in particular there was right in the streets from where I live in North London. I've also learned an awful lot because I happen to be lucky enough to live in a very progressive labor-controlled local authority. So we learned a lot about how the community sector can actually work with the services to actually reach the people who need it most. So I think the, 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 the conclusion that I draw from that is this kind of community-based learning is essential if we're serious about building a more democratic, a fairer society. Um, and that communities can't do it on their own. They do need public resources, but they need to be provided in partnership, not winging down somewhere from Whitehall or where, wherever else. Brilliant. So, so you've made me want to read that chapter, Marjorie. I mean, that, but that is brilliant because it feels like it's deep, it's foundational, it's transformative. But it feels like hard work and long work. I mean, that's why we need an agenda to, you know, to, to, to do this consistently, not over months or years, but over decades, don't we, to get yeah. people tooled up and skilled up. Is there, a, you know, is, is there a hope that we're going to get to that stage of long-term investment and long-term resources to do that kind of deep educational awareness and skills and et cetera, uh, well, we, you know, kind of building? 
I think we're, it's an uphill struggle, isn't it? We absolutely need it. And there are organisations, I mean, including traditional ones like the WA that have been around for an awful long time doing this kind of work. I mean, in the past, some universities and colleges used to do it. That's got more constrained. So it's an uphill battle, but it is happening. It's also happening in the trade union movement. And I think that's also really important for the future. So um, I think it's up to all of us to really make the case and try to make it happen. And I guess while the social media side of it can be used for, for ill, it can also be used for good because the way it accelerated those mutual aid groups was incredible, wasn't it? That people got, you know, the transfer of knowledge and information, you know, and problem solving was so quick and to scale that we, yeah. that, you know, is that a, a reason for hope? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's also, of course, that young people often like operating in that way and are very good at it and and so that's important that's an important factor too yeah okay Diane you've been very patient let's get to you and and quite rightly your chapters about sustainable communities for the future give us a quick overview of what you've said in that please yep thanks very much Neil thanks everybody and hello my chapters on the contribution of community-led environmental action essentially which tackles both global environmental problems, which is putting into action the old slogan of think global, act local, and transforming local communities in a number of ways. So community-led environmental action can create innovative solutions to local environmental and social problems of global significance. So it's, it works at all sorts of different levels. It can provide a relatively easy way in to community action. It can be quite an unthreatening, easy, practical thing to do, often with immediate visual results, that can reinforce citizens' confidence and willingness to do more. It can draw attention to disparities of power, to own, control and access environmental assets that create the context for continued inequalities, injustice and exclusion. And in, you know, linking to what Marge was saying, it can build learning and stronger collective working from practice, from actually doing it, and create the basis for citizens' critical consciousness, back to Freire, Yes. and leading to wider social change. So it, what, what it can do is uh, inequalities can be exposed by um, and tackled by engaging in something we all share, which is the environment within which we live and which deeply affects the quality of our lives, the air we breathe, the buildings we live in, the quality of our neighbourhood streets and beyond. And obviously everybody knows it's the poorest people who have the worst environmental problems, pollution, traffic, degraded neighbourhoods, flood risk, contaminated land, lack of green space, with the poorest health and quality of life, and as a result, everyone suffers. So to put this in a sort of global policy context, because I think what's interesting about environmental issues is that they, they span the global and the local. So since the 1970s, the United Nations has talked about the role of citizens and communities in creating a healthier relationship between people and the planet. And then in the 1980s, the concept of sustainable development appeared. What that talks about is the need to meet current human needs, especially tackling poverty and inequality, but without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So those ideas of linking essential social, economic and political development to, meeting, to meet human needs with environmental consequences and intergenerational responsibilities alongside community and citizen action. That's all wrapped up in the idea of sustainable development, which became really, really popular. In you know, the UN had a conference in 1992 and set an agenda for the 
2021, and by 2000, 93% of local authorities had local Agenda 21 strategies. It became a really useful catch-all for local, um, local action. And those sorts of things are still carrying on with lots of local authorities doing declaring climate emergencies. So I think in August last year, more than half of the 408 principal local authorities had declared a climate emergency. So, so global problems are being recognised at local level and community-led action can tackle some of those things. So in the chapter, I give some examples of successful community environmental action with social, economic and political implications, including tackling dangerous air pollution, the development of land and buildings, including through citizen participation in the planning system and beyond, the continuing importance of place to well-being, um, which I think is one of the things which various political parties have started to talk about more, creating and maintaining urban green spaces and fighting for access to the countryside for health and recreation, um, improving neighbourhood quality by fighting, fighting what are often seen as unimportant problems but can really affect quality of life like vandalism, litter, graffiti which and tackling those can increase feelings of security and safety and the big one tackling climate change. So there are community-led low-carbon energy developments and lots of community projects on reducing energy demand through insulating homes while tackling fuel poverty and reducing inequality, what people are now talking about in terms of climate justice. So just to finish off, um, I've identified six lessons from all of this sort of work. First one is transforming communities requires integrated environmental, social, economic and political change. If you separate those things out, everything becomes weakened and sustainable development provides quite a useful ethic for pulling all that together. The second thing is about connecting policy with practice. So better connections are needed. And I noticed in one of the, in the chat, one of the points raised is how you connect local people with experience of tackling local problems um, with politicians and public servants. And the voices of local people are very rarely heard in town halls and Whitehall. So better solutions to local and global problems can be found by listening to the grassroots experience and taking those voices into account. Third thing is using science well. Environmentalists are really good at using science. Um, the, the case study in the chapter about air pollution shows how you know, measuring air quality can really, you know, and getting all the scientific evidence, working with universities can really sort of bolster your case. But I think it's, so sound science is really vital to lots of the work that people are talking about in the book. But there's also something else which is that it, it needs to be set alongside other sorts of other sorts of ways of thinking about it, particularly the precautionary principle, which is don't wait before harm is caused by inaction. You have to get on and do it. So the precautionary principle is also is being careful, but also taking action when it's needed, and obviously and participation. So precaution and participation alongside sound science. <laughs> lots lots of people in the in the science policy world are now are now saying this is the way that we need to think about science as a as a part of our decision making. Thinking long-term is really important. None of the actions that come from community-led activities are short-term, as you're saying, Neil, none of them. Long-term engagement is needed between citizens, communities, and governments at all levels, which means long-term political and investment and funding commitments across um, government at all levels beyond short-term electoral cycles. So in my view, that's likely to need cross-party working. Um, which is you know, something which obviously we're pushing in our local Brighton and Hove Compass group, 
but I think if, if you haven't got something in, in Brighton and Hove, we've got Green councillors and Labour councillors who work together to identify some key areas where they would uh, agree and work together, which means that when the administration shifted from, from Labour to Green, the same priorities continued through. So, so it's, it's a really nice way of thinking about how you get long term commitment to these things. Two more things, providing the right resources at the right time. It needs investment. It needs big investment in infrastructure and in projects, um, as well as easy access to small grants for, for groups just starting. And finally, willingness to change. I think we, we all know how difficult it is for institutions to change. And I think that the difficulties that institutions face need to be taken seriously by those of us who are pushing these ideas. I think by working together, by practicing partnership, by by working to support local community action, um, we can build those relationships. And that's, that's how you can actually get um, some experience of beginning to transform communities and working to save the planet at the same time. Brilliant, Brilliant. thanks Diane. Six, six easy steps to, to get this right. And, and you've alluded to, to uh, uh, the, the next bit of the questions before I hand over to Gabriel. I mean, let's go, go around, you know, maybe all three of you and start with Henry. Let's let's because this is compass. Let's get to the big politics of this. Does this agenda demand a change of government? You know, and can the Conservatives do this? We were discussing off air before the fact that people like Danny, Conservative MP Danny Kruger, is looking at these issues. That the Leveling Up agenda is going to become quite sophisticated. That Tory mayors like um, Houchin in Teesside and Street in Birmingham are developing a more kind of, you know, municipal, local conservatism. You know, can it be done by the right or does it have to be done by the centre, centre left? What do you think, Henry? Well, I, I think um, whether you call that when, when they start doing this, whether they're still just the right or the conventional right anymore is, is a whole theoretical question. As, a, as for this current Tory government, there are specific questions to be put to them. For example, with the community infrastructure levy, which um, I, I don't know if many, many people know, in, in planning, when, when a developer wants to develop something, the current legislation has said that you need to ensure that you contribute so much back to the communities to help the communities so that you, your, your permission to develop will benefit the community. Now, the current Tory government has removed the community element from this infrastructure levy. So in future, it's just the infrastructure Levy, you don't have to take into account the community perspective. Now, so how serious are, are they about the communities I mentioned? So th there are specific questions to put to the, the, the Conservative government, but more broadly, this whole agenda is whether they are prepared to actually invest long-term in building partnerships with community organizations. Now, up, up to now, it's all very small scale, short-term, ad hoc, um, leave it to, to communities to, to do things. Are they prepared to, to do anything which will sustain for instance, which many um, community experts have been arguing for, a long-term community development um, funding support so that where, where this work is essential, which is community development workers in local authorities and public um, organizations and even health services, I needed to build bridges between communities as, as a long-term foundation for a lot of this work, whether it is the environment, health, policing, and, and, and so on. And without that commitment, uh, it just won't happen. Now, so is the Conservative government prepared to actually provide this type of long-term support? It ought to become a, like, like the NHS. It ought to be something foundational for communities to develop into a robust platform to do all these different things, which communities at the centre, but working to a progressive framework to improve lives for everyone in an inclusive manner. 
Now, I think when, when it's put to them like that, um, whether Benny Krug himself would, would be supportive of it, there'll be many others saying that, no, no, we, we don't want to get sucked into this because they'll be taking us too far away from, I mean, particularly one contrast is wanting private sector to, to, to do things or actually helping the communities to invest in lots of community-based, cooperative-based enterprises and initiatives, um, which would take profit away from, from the private enterprises and make it impossible for them to charge exploitative um, you know, cost, cost, take, take money away from workers and so on. So they would hesitate on that. And I, I think that would be, again, a dividing line between what, what is needed, between what Labour would be, ought to be prepared to do and what Tory government, I says, might, might be hesitant to do. So Marjorie and Diane, I mean, the, you know, Henry set out a challenge there. How do we create a political settlement in which you know community empowerment and community development becomes like the NHS, that it's a kind of given that's is unchallengeable. A any thoughts, you know, Marjorie first about how we get there, or you can reflect on the difference yeah. between the left and right elements of this. But it'd be yeah. great if we could build a, a national consensus that power yeah. was devolved and and people were empowered to you know to build yeah. their local communities as they yeah. see fit. It it would be great. And it would be great if the uh, leopard could change its spots, as they say. Uh, I'm sure there could have been conservative governments in the past that might have been more amenable to those kind of partnerships. Um, I, I do think that at the end of the day, the, the kind of community learning I'm talking about and social movements is about pushing it from the bottom up and being strong enough to actually force things on the, force issues on the agenda. Um, and I think also to build on where there is good practice. I mean, there are local authorities, regional authorities that have actually been working well in this way. And I think we should, um, we should celebrate those more. And we should also, also celebrate what a whole lot of young activists in particular, not just young, but lots of young activists amongst them are, are doing for themselves. I think there were 7,000 people who took part in political education events outside the, the Labour Party two years ago. That's kind of amazing. And, and Diane, how do you see the big politics of this playing out? I think that the, the difficulty for the Tories is that what, what this is about is a completely different way of exercising power. It's, it's really devolving power to citizens and communities in a way which has, has not been something which, which they've supported in the past. If you look at the track record, that in principle or in practice, there's been little or no support for community-based initiatives from the, from the Tories. All that's happened is that all the funding, all the investment for infrastructure support to support community-based action, because community-based action can just bubble up and, and happen on its own, but for it to be sustained and for it to continue in the long term, it needs to have investment, it needs to have infrastructure, it needs to have organisations which can help people when things go wrong, which can give them money, which can provide places where they can meet. It, it, there's, a, there's a whole range of different things that community-based, community-led activities need to support them. And there is absolutely no evidence that any conservative local authority or national government has been willing to, to invest in those sorts of things long-term. Short-term projects, innovation, we'll try a bit of innovation here, we'll give a bit of money over there, but not, not the long-term investment, which, you no, know, to be fair to Labour, have they have invested a lot of money over the long term in some really, really significant projects which have made real achievements. When the funding stops, 
Sure Start, some of the regeneration programs, once the funding is pulled out, which is wasn't that wasn't, you know, it was the Tories that pulled the, all this funding out, that the com communities have no support locally, they have no facilities, so nothing is going to grow. It, 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 little things can bubble up, but, but that sort of thing that Henry was talking about in terms of an infrastructure, which is going to support a different way of working, which is not to say that communities can solve all problems, because you still need to have a whole range of public services alongside what communities can do. Communities can do all sorts of exciting things. They can't provide health care, you know, they, they can't provide an NHS, but they can provide bits of it. They can, they can, they can innovate, they can show, and, you know, in answer to one of the, the questions and one of the comments in the, um, in the chat, they can actually show how a different way of doing things can work. So you can, you can show things through community action at a local level, which can then be used as a way of developing national policy thinking. I hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. It's Bloody Complicated is brought to you by Compass and is made possible by the support of our amazing members, like Clive. Here's Clive on why he joined the Compass community. My name's Clive Lewis. I'm a Labour MP for Norwich South. I've been involved with Compass for seven years or more and a member for a few years now. My involvement with Compass first started because it was the first left-wing organisation I saw that was really pushing forward the environmental agenda. This was, this was years ahead of anything that was being talked about in Labour at the time, and I thought it was fantastic. I keep supporting Compass today because it's a refuge you know, in, a, in a political environment, which to be quite frank, is extremely tribal, it's extremely difficult. It's the culture of Compass. It's about asking difficult questions and acknowledging that there will be differences. But actually those differences are a strength, not a weakness. You can be in any faction of the Labour Party or any faction of the Green Party or the Liberal Democrats or any other progressive organisation or in no political party. Just someone who's interested in the world around them and wants to see the world change for the better. It's where I get my political sustenance from and, and it means a lot to me to be a part of that community. And that's why I would wholeheartedly endorse it to you. Find out more about joining the Compass community at compassonline.org.uk slash podcast. And now, back to the conversation. And um, we might come back to Labour and Labourism in a bit, but Gabriel, why don't you start with the questions? Okay, thanks very much, Neil. Thanks, everyone. First of all, we're going to go to Jane Franklin. Hi, I'm just interested in the way that um, how, how we can create a dialogue and link community action to national policymaking um, to ensure... Um, a, a, um, a robust kind of um, distribution, a just distribution of power and resources. Thanks, Jane. And we had a, a question in the same sort of realm from Michael Corcoran. Uh, my interest is in the transformation to, to low and zero carbon energy, uh, both on the supply and, and um, demand side of that equation. And I'm closely involved with, with community climate groups that, that interact with local authorities and our MP. But there's a limit, in my view, as to how communities can engage effectively with what has to be a national energy strategy. And nowhere is this more clearly evidenced, in my view, than in the enthusiasm for photovoltaics, putting them on roofs, putting them in fields in arrays. That's useful at the moment, but quite soon they're going to be counterproductive because the only way that we'll be able to integrate them into a system is for very extensive energy storage. 
much more than would be associated with wind turbines, which are not a particularly practical option for local authorities. So there has to be some way of corralling this enthusiasm and pointing it in the right direction so that it actually builds a resilient energy, energy strategy for the country. So, and how, how then do we build that, that interaction that needs, that needs to be made between central government, region and the community? Thanks very much, Michael. Uh, should we take one more on this round of questions and another on a similar theme from Sarah Devon? Hi there. It was really a bit of a cynical comment following Jane's question. So often there are, you know, individuals, communities wanting to do things, but there doesn't seem to be the support from government. Quite often, the, the, I would say that the policy is lacking. So um, how can we perhaps use local Good, good practice to, to nudge the policy along or, or perhaps a, a more realistic thing is, are there any examples of where local activity has prompted a national change or actual creation of a policy? Thanks, Sarah and Michael and Jane. Diane, would you, would you like to kick us off on, on Michael's question? Yes, I mean, I think I have to say I completely agree with the, with the premise of the question. I think it's... it's it's very difficult for um, local community groups to, I think you need both a national energy policy and local action. I think local community groups can do all sorts of things. I think that the sorts of things that you were talking about, Michael, were you know, um, PV and other current technologies, which are really difficult. They're difficult for communities to do them because they're not always popular locally. So that creates sort of, that can create local conflicts, but also, um, it, I mean, there, there, there are all sorts of things that community groups can do. There, there's, you know, people, local communities have set up low carbon energy generation, even in, in small in small levels with sufficient funding. So they can they can do these things. But I think um, I think what's what's really important about that is that that people once people start to interact with the practice of doing these things they can then give their experience to, to, to help to generate that national policy. I mean, obviously, there are um, climate assemblies at local level and at national level, which is one way that ordinary citizens can feed through. But that, that's not the same thing as we're talking about, which is where community voices, where people who've actually been doing local community action can feed through to that. The, the, the one example that I have seen where that's worked is that there was a government programme called Low Carbon Communities Challenge, where, which is mentioned in the chapter, where government invested some very large sums of money in about 20 local communities where they could, uh, they could do um, insulation, they could do uh, low carbon energy generation projects, they could just have more um, low energy light bulbs in schools or also a whole range of different things. But what was really interesting was that as part of the project, two things, they would they each project was given somebody who helped them develop as a community group so it helped them work together learn about what they were doing reflect on what they were doing evaluate what they were doing so that they were actually learning and um, articulating what was happening locally all the time so there was local learning but there was also several um, seminars which brought together civil servants from department for energy and people um, directly in community groups visits from those civil servants to see what the communities were doing. 
and I was part of the, the program, ScienceWise program, which was funding this, and that was one of the things which we insisted on, is that the, the work had to find some way of influencing policy. For civil servants to go and look at a local community project and see what could be done locally and to talk to people who've actually been through that was transformative, not just for the people on the ground who had a voice directly to some people working in national government, but it was also transformative for those civil servants who began to think differently about how you create and implement national energy policy. So that's, it's really rare for that to happen, but we know it can happen and it, it can work really well. So I hope that sort of goes some way to, to answering that, that question. Thanks, Diane. Henry, Marjorie, is there anything you'd like to pick up from those other questions from Jane and from Sarah? If I could pick up on the, the, the question about the dialogue and sort of how can communities engage with national policy making, I think there, there are a number of points to be made there. One is that um, you, you need engagement at a national level. And, and now we, we have mechanisms such as community conferencing, which you can actually bring people together at, at a national level event that the people need to be brought brought together um, for a, a, a week-long discussion about uh, those, na those those national policies and in fact in the run-up to the um, Paris agreement um, something was done on an international level where it happened um, across a number of weeks and many many different countries where dialogue with um, a, you know a selection of local people was made and they talked with experts about what policies um, are, are feasible, what is likely, so that the policymakers can get a sense of what people in different countries uh, sense would be realistic and necessary to actually tackle the climate change problem. So, so there are mechanisms, but also alongside that, we need more subsidi subsidiarity. Uh, we need more national policymaking to be connected with more regional and local level policy discussion and, and more input so that local um, agencies can engage with local communities in developing those those policies. But I think one key element um, of, of, of Jane's question um, was also about how, how do you um, keep people engaged? So it's not, not just a one-off basis. Um, you know, how can then people say, oh, this is what I think at this present time, but what, what, what difference does it make in the future? I think in terms of the ongoing uh, liaison and, and, and continuous influence over the policies, what is needed is um, the, the type of thing that I think, um, again, um, the, the Labour government in, in the past, if I take one example, with community policing, because people used to say, well, how can we influence what, what the police does? And with, with the community policing policy, actually, there was certainly in, in quite a number of areas, there was regular liaison discussion between local communities and representatives of, of the police and local authorities to talk about priorities, about options, about what to be done, and then feedback on what has been done and how effective it is. Now, a, a similar approach on uh, environmental issues, on climate issues, would actually sustain that kind of policy development, that kind of dialogue uh, on, on an ongoing basis. But it goes back to the earlier point that we've all made. It needs to be sustained. That kind of community liaison, that kind of community-based activities um, can't be sustained if it all depends on just a one-off grant and the government says, right, that's it now. We, we're not doing any of this anymore. It needs to be a genuine long-term investment, not see it as we're giving you, we're kindly giving you just, just a little bit of money, but actually to say, this is a kind of community infrastructure that is needed to sustain the type of dialogue, which would help shape better policies for the future for every community in, in the country. Could I just add to what's been said? 
that in addition to forms of dialogue and the other things that have been mentioned, I do think if you look at some of the big changes that have happened in my lifetime, um, they've also been pushed. They've been pushed from the bottom by social movements who've been pushing governments, but have had local, local pressures too. You think about pressures for gender equality and you had small local women's groups, but they were part of something much bigger. And if you think how that has shifted in the last 50, 50 or 60 years or so, I think it's huge. Um, I think our attitude to the environment in general has really shifted. These issues are on the agenda in a way that they really weren't a generation ago. Some people were taking them up, but they've been forced onto the agenda and political parties have actually been pressured into having to respond to them in some way. And I, I think that is really, really important. It's not either or. Brilliant stuff. Yeah, 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 back to you, Diane, please. Just add a very quick thing. Uh, it's, a, it's another um, policy press book, which is called Too Hot to Handle, The Democratic Challenge of Climate Change. And it, what, what it's arguing is that, um, and we know from all the, the public opinion polls, that climate change is just under COVID now as the key issue that people are concerned about. But concern doesn't always translate into action and concern doesn't always translate into political action. So uh, what this book is suggesting and what I'm suggesting in my chapter is that actually if you if people... If people don't change at local level, if ordinary citizens and communities don't demand and act in a different way and call for policy changes and actually do that with real strong democratic influence on decision making, then it won't change. It's, it, it's no use just saying, you know, people are concerned about climate change, which of course they are. Public attitudes have really, as Marge said, public attitudes have really shifted on this. And it is, it is certain amount of lip service paid to it um, in, in all political parties, doing something about it, and particularly with this government, is a very different thing because nothing is being done and all sorts of things are being done which actually go in completely the opposite direction. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, and, and on that point of, of public pressure and public opinion, uh, we had a question from Jackie Nixon. Jackie? Yes, I was just wondering whether um, citizens' assemblies would help to put pressure on local government to support local, what local people want uh, with funding, infrastructure, expertise and so on. Um, is that the way of kind of providing a catalyst to change? OK, we've got a question here from John Fox, who compares the UK to relative successes elsewhere in the developing world. John, would you like to put your question to the panel? Okay, I, 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 this is a terrific discussion, by the way. First question is building communities or rebuilding communities in the case of UK is a continuous process that continues from one generation to the next. It's a long-term process. Can we define what we mean by any particular community? Because they're all different. Mm. And they are often, even, even within our ward, uh, we don't have a community. We have a network of different communities that are compartmentalized. So which communities are we talking about? And the second one is, uh, let me just scroll it up a bit. The international, uh, I, I'm following the discussion and the international community have been doing everything that you're talking about for at least 30 years through investing in local governments and local communities. 
not everything succeeds. There's a lot of learning in the process, a lot of mistakes, there's a lot of corruption, there's a lot of all kinds of things. But by and large, this approach works very well in some of the poorest countries in the world. So why is it that UK is so far behind? Uh, it takes investments, it takes long-term training, capacity building, and in identifying the young leaders of the future to make this happen. Thanks, John. Okay. Henry, would you like to come back on, on any of those first? Yeah, sure. I think on, on the question of citizens' assembly, I mean, that's certainly one tool that, that can be used. But I will stress that um, we've got to be cautious um, in being aware that we, we need to, be, to understand um, what the local authority is like in particular cases. Because if, if the local authority is potentially responsive, uh, it may be very helpful to institute a citizens assembly. But if it is totally unresponsive, you could be taking up a lot of people's time and energy to construct something, to produce a report, which would then be completely ignored by the local authority and would just breed disillusionment. Um, there, there are many actual techniques to actually draw communities together um, in, in order to facilitate um, change and reactions in, in, in other potential organizations in the locality. Um, and, and, and sometimes it takes imagination. It could, for, for example, um, starting a time banking scheme, which may interest some local authority more, 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 than, more than others. Or you can say we, we're trying to start a uh, community-based food growing and distribution um, initiative, which again would interest uh, potentially some councillors more than others. So you need to understand what you're dealing with. You know, what, what, what is the council like, where it is at, what, what, what are its priorities, what are the councillors? like before you choose the type of technique which would probably motivate and get, and get most of the response. On the other question, um, de defining community. I mean, I actually have, have, have written a lot about um, you know, the con conception of, of communities. And, and I always say that, look, I, I think we, we should get away from saying that, you know, should there be sort of one uh, concept of, of community? Com communities is actually what people living, working together in, in an area get to know each other through dialogues, through consensus building, through conflict resolution. Um, there are different conceptions. And even when people come to agree uh, about different priorities, they may still have different objectives and different interests and concerns in, in their lives. There's no reason at all why so-called one community, everyone in that community should have the same aspiration and, and precise objective or meaning of life. Um, the, the fact that, you know, People have different religious views, for, for example. What's important is that people share a view of how best to live together, what they should pursue together, what sort of things they should guard against, what sort of things they should advance, and so on. And that comes through community development, community organizing, through inclusive dialogues, and so on, rather than saying, how can we turn us into a community where, where all the members have a single share um, objective about what our community is, is, is all about. Um, as for why, it, it, it takes so long, I think, is, is often because um, politicians um, just, just ship, instead of learning the lessons which, which are there, too often they, they think about what, what is the, the newest thing that we can refer to, what is the latest um, innovation that, that we, we can claim to, to, to bring about for maybe a year or two years, then drop it and move on to something else which is completely brand new, instead of learning the lessons which have been accumulated for 30, 40 years of things which actually have worked and invest in, in that. Um, and in, in, imagine the health service, if you only um, do things which are the latest innovative model and forget things which have worked for the last 10, 20, 30 years, it would not be a very good health service 
um, at all. So I think we should begin to learn the lessons which are already there and apply them in our policy making. Yeah, could I just come in to add about the point about communities? Because I, I think that is really, really important. There is a dark side to community as well as a positive side. Communities can be exclusive and discriminatory to others. And I think in the end, you have to go back to say, well, there are values involved here. And there are values for me of social justice, solidarity and, and equalities and, and respect. Um, and unfortunately, those won't be shared by all communities, but those are, those are the values that we're working towards. I hope we'll, I'm sure we're all here working towards. Can I just add something on the citizens' assemblies point? I think I personally, I'm an enormous fan of citizens' assemblies. I think that sort of deliberative working that, that Jackie raises, where you've actually got people with specialist knowledge and decision makers and local citizens, all local and national. So I've done a lot of work with uh, at national level with the equivalent of citizens' assemblies. Um, they can put, they can be really transformative for everybody involved. They can really shift. Policy, policy makers can find a way of listening to this. So I think they do have enormous potential. I think that Henry's point is quite right. It's, it's not a, it does not to solve all the problems. There's all sorts of other ways in which we can do this. But we do know, actually with quite a lot of these things, um, you know, I think uh, John Fox was, is sort of doing the UK down a bit. We do know how to do these things here. We have a lot of experience of providing the right sort of support to communities. It's not that we don't know how to do it. We know very well how to run good citizens' assemblies, which really influence policy, because that's the, the really important thing. They, they, they influence decision-making, otherwise absolutely no point at all. Um, so we know how to do that. We know how to do follow-on. We know how to look after the people that are on those assemblies, and we know how to make the best use of what comes out of them. But it needs, everybody's saying the same thing, it needs long-term, it needs political commitment to this way of working and it needs long-term investment in this way of working, which means infrastructure, places, people who are there in the long-term to provide the support to do this. It doesn't just happen on its own. Brilliant. Thanks, Gabriel. And thanks uh, to, to you, the members, for those questions. Let's wind this up now by just, you know, continuing that bit um, with a couple of comments. And I think, Diane, you've said your bit, and I think that was exact, exactly right. Maybe over to Marjorie and, and, then, and then Henry. That yeah. this, it's a culture shift, isn't it, we need? Because if we want this long-term, deep, participatory investment in resources and dialogue and people, this isn't what yeah. our current politicians do, is it, Marjorie? How do no. we get them to do this? No, that's absolutely right. And we really have to work for it and put the pressure on. And including, of course, the Labour Party, which we need to put a lot of pressure on the Labour Party to get it to shift in this kind of direction. And we need to work with all the other, with the big social movements, like the trade unions, the faith groups who are prepared to work on these issues. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. Henry, uh, last word from you about how do we make, you know, the, the culture change happen, not just the policy and investment change. How do we get a new politics? How do you know, how do we, what do, how do we make the arguments um, to persuade the politicians to do this long-term, much more humble, deeper foundational stuff? Well, knowing politicians, having worked with, you know, from, from, from all politicians from all parties, I think one way of pushing this agenda is to actually talking to talk about a, a funding structure for this, because there, there are lots of tiny, tiny bits of funding streams um, around this agenda at the moment. It would make a lot more sense to actually consolidate them, to, to, to develop what I have called a community development fund, 
which will be funded nationally by, by the government, but distributed locally by communities through community partnerships, local government, community organizations, and so on. Um, but with a very clearly defined framework, not the kind of old style treasury uh, tightly set target, but with, with a progressive framework to say that your, the outcomes need to be inclusive, there need to be no discrimination, social justice, and the things that, that Marge was talking about, that you, you need to make sure that everyone um, benefits from, from this and equal, the least well-off should be the, getting the most support and, and, and so on. But you must draw on the evidence which, have been, which has been uh, unearthed from a lot of research, and, and this is available, to, so that you can use the money to fund, whether it's community economic development, platform technology, um, community-based regeneration, community-based learning, community environmental action, and so on and so forth. It's, it's up to you how to, to spend it, how to improve your communities. But the funding is guaranteed on a long-term basis is a legacy of any government that would bring it in. Now, Labour can call it the Stronger Together Fund. If the Tories come in, they can rename it, but don't, don't, don't drop the funding because it will be, it'll be so important to local people. They'll never forgive, forgive you drop, drop, dropping it. You can call it whatever else. But to, to actually put this kind of funding structure in, which would be very visible to, to local people, but actually give them the genuine flexibility and local responsiveness to do the type of initiatives that we've been talking about, I think would be a way forward. And then we would involve local community groups in actually deliberating on how to use the money for their own benefit locally. Fabulous. And while we're on air, um, Steve Reid, who's Labour's Shadow Communities and Local Government spokesperson, uh, sent me a picture of the book from his desk. Um, we <laughs> sent it to him. So he's got it. Um, so maybe that's a bit of a start in terms of influencing the, the, the agenda. So thanks so much, Henry, Marjorie and, and Diane, and, and good luck. It was a real honour to be able to help you launch this great book, Tomorrow's Communities, Lessons for Community-Based Transformation in the Age of Global Crisis. And please, as ever, everyone, keep safe and keep hopeful, and let's keep working for our good society. Take care. So... If you like what you've heard today and want to be part of a much more equal, democratic and sustainable future, a good society, then visit us at compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast and you'll be able to join us live on future calls just like this one. You can tweet me at neal, N-E-A-L underscore compass or compass at compass office. And if you've enjoyed this week's episode, please give us a rating. It will help us reach more listeners in the future. And it's only fair that they know it's bloody complicated too.